0: I feel like i was just on an oprah show or something like that. this has been my favorite episode so far
1: <laughs> you get a car and you get a car <laughs> i don't have cars people i'm sorry <laughs>
0: I'm Jonathan Platt, and this is Direct Line, the absolute best podcast in the Baylor family. At a predominantly white institution like Baylor, what's the person of color experience like? While we all love Baylor and chose to come here for specific reasons, there are a lot of problems with how both the university and the community approach race. Maybe as a Baylor family member of color, You feel routine instances of otherness, isolation, or soft, covert racism. You may even be wondering if you'll ever find acceptance, community, and self-fulfillment in a place so different from your culture. That's the case for my guest today. In this episode, I discuss how to find a community built on shared values, shared experiences, and a commitment to acceptance so that you can feel a part of both a small community at Baylor and like you found your home in the Baylor family. And also, how to ensure that your community not only embraces you but helps you grow as a person. And that's with our guide for this week, Ray Jefferson. Ray is the communications director at Waco Family Health Center. Previously, she served as the director of marketing and communications for Creative Waco. Her work has appeared in numerous publications, and she currently lives in Waco, Texas, and now is back at Baylor pursuing a master's in journalism. Ray is also a very, very long friend of mine. We started out uh, at the Lariat together when we were undergraduate, and we do a little bit of uh, some fun catching up in this episode that I really think you'll enjoy. But also in this episode, you're going to hear who Ray is and how she made Waco her home since graduating from undergraduate in 2016 what it's like for Ray to be back at Baylor as a master's student and how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed the classroom experience, how Ray came to understand and embrace her identity as a person of color during her undergraduate years at Baylor, how she found a community at Baylor that helps her to love and accept every part of her and why it's so important for Baylor students of color to find communities that can help them discover the joys of loving their cultures and themselves. Here's my interview with the amazing Ray Jefferson. Ray Jefferson. Welcome to the Direct Line Podcast. Hello, John Platt. Thanks for having me. I am very excited to have you on board. Ray, you and I have known each other for like seven years now. Mm -hmm. We were in undergraduate together and we worked at the Lariat. um, But for those who don't know you, do you want to give your spiel? What you're doing, what you've been doing, what you'd rather be doing than this? Absolutely. Um, I'd rather not be living through a pandemic, as many of us probably
1: feel. (laughs) But um, right now, I am the communications director at Family Health Center in Waco. Um, We're basically a system of clinics that provides affordable or free health care for people in the city who can't afford it. Um, A lot of people think that we're a free clinic. We're actually not. Um, but our pay structure is set so that people are able to basically take ownership of their health care at whatever level they are able to do so, We provide medical, dental and behavioral health services, as well as a number of um, pretty innovative forms of care that are not even, you know, mainstream in for-profit environments. Um and so we do a lot of things like providing prescriptions for produce or providing prescriptions for exercise, which are really fundamental to preventative health care, but are things that are not accessible to people in lower income communities. Wow. Um, and so we give out free produce. We have a gym on site that people can work out at for free and receive um, one-on-one um, exercise recommendations from um, professionals who know what they're doing. And so it's just, it's really great that we are basically able to kind of provide a really comprehensive and in some ways, even more sophisticated form of health care than um, a lot of the private hospitals and private doctors are able to do for their patients. So, um, it's a lot of fun. I basically take care of everything that is related to marketing and communicating about the center. Um, and so I, you know, do social media, website, um, news interviews, things like that. Um, you know, things that are not actual healthcare, but that are still, I think, really important for the sustainability and just the, the fact that people know that we're here to serve them.
0: Yeah. On the side, you're also a creative. You write and contribute and just do lots of fun, creative things. Um, You were also at Creative Waco before that. Were you the director of communication there? Yep, I was. Okay, cool. And how long have you been at Waco Family Health Center? Um, it's, it's going on two
1: years at the end in, in December of really? this year. Yeah. Um, I can't believe that. Yeah, I know. The time has really flown and I was at Creative Waco for another two years as well. And yeah. so it's strange to me to realize that I've been out of school and like in the workforce for almost four years now. Yeah.
0: And now you're actually back at Baylor. <laughs> I in, am. <laughs> in our old home, back yeah. in Castle Law. How is the semester going? You just went through like midterms. I did. I did. <laughs> How's the first <laughs> semester of grad school?
1: Um, so it's been really great. It's, a, you know, it's a lot different than, undergrad, I think that... um it's much because I am there at this point, I'm there because I really want to be. Yeah. Not that I didn't want to be an undergrad, but right. it was just kind of, you know, in my family, it was like, all right, you're going right. to go to college yeah. now. Yeah. So it was just like an extension of high school, like yeah. the expe- expectation of being there. Um, but with grad school, I've, I'm already an adult. I've been working, I'm living on my own. So I'm there because I want to be. And I think that that really has kind of transformed the way that I interact with education. Yeah. Um, I'm much more diligent about doing homework, Yeah. <laughs> partially because you have to be, yeah. <laughs> you have to yeah. read a lot. And if you show up (laughs) don't know, um, that's not good. (laughs) Um, but it's, it's been really great. I've been, I've already learned so much, um, just from reading research that others have done, um, and just learning about kind of the theories that have been guiding the work that I've been doing, but now I can kind of more intentionally do communications work or, you know, journalism work. And and so it's been, it's been great. It's been hard trying to figure out how to do school while also working full-time, um, and having life responsibilities outside of that. But um, it's been really rewarding so far. So I, I suspect it'll just get better as I learn more and yeah. kind of get, get better and get into the flow.
0: When when I was somewhere in the middle of my graduate uh, degree, I can't remember who for the life of me, but I quote whoever it is all the time. Uh, someone told me that the difference between undergraduate and graduate programs is undergraduate is instructive and graduate programs are collaborative. Sure. It's much less about like listening to a professor. Professor lecture in like a huge hall for an hour and 15 minutes and it's much more about showing up to the class ready to like talk about the material and what you have like gained from the material absolutely yeah that's definitely been my experience so far yeah um
1: and so of course that like I said that means that I have to be more prepared but you know at the same time I am kind of more excited about being prepared and having a um kind of a more upfront role about my
0: experience in education. Yeah, and you picked, I guess you didn't pick, you went back uh, during one of, you know, maybe the worst times to go back to school. How has that been going from, like, you, we were in undergraduate, we graduated, what, like four years ago Mm -hmm. in December? Yeah, so we graduated four years ago. Now, being back in it four years later, uh, I mean, you said, like, just the general education structure is different, but... Now you're in a totally different, like, classroom structure. How has that been?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, this is not very important, but one detail I would like to add is that when we were in undergrad, they didn't have key cards locking the doors to the building. Yeah. And I have an evening class, and so on one of the first days that I actually showed up in person, I tried to enter the building and couldn't because it was locked. <laughs> because it's been four years since I was in school, I didn't have my ID anymore, so I was like, well, I guess I'll just go home then. <laughs>
0: Um, <laughs> Luckily, with this semester though, a lot of your classes are on Zoom, yes. so you went back home and, and still got on to Zoom. go to class. Yeah, yeah, yeah it was fine. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, so it it has been really weird transitioning to a Zoom experience, yeah. and as I've as I've of course been hearing about students, you know, from elementary all the way up to college mm-hmm. having to adjust to Zoom classrooms, I have finally been able to experience that, and it's um it's kind of a lot. You know, you would think that oh, you know, you just turn on Zoom and the professor's just there and, like, that's yeah. the end of it. But um, it, I think it's it's given me a lot of grace for the, the instructors of the courses mm-hmm. because they're having to not only figure out how to get information to people in class, which is yeah. already a lot. That's what their full-time job was before yeah. the pandemic. But now they're having to figure out how to do all of that same work for people on Zoom. Yeah. And that includes doing quizzes and midterms and stuff. And, you know, how do you control... Um, the integrity of exams and things when you're having to email a digital copy of the test to somebody at home and you don't have any basically reference for what it is that they're doing or how they're taking that exam or if it's just them like you know yeah and so I kind of feel like the semester and just the um, the whole learning experience has definitely um, it's been an adjustment for sure yeah Uh, but I will say that I think that instructors have also been much more gracious with us as students because of that Um, I've noticed that for myself and for other and for my peers, you know, there's just been a lot of um, just sort of leniency in terms of, you know, there's a lot going on in every aspect of our lives. And so even professors who typically have been very strict and very demanding, they're still strict and demanding and like their um, expectations of us are still really high, but they're also um, understanding of the fact that things are not good for anybody right now.
0: Yeah. So I that's someone the other day was talking about how um, about how higher education like institutions are going to have to change because of the economic side of this. Um, but you saying that I I really hope that higher education institutions can change because of the personal side of this too. I, I mean students even without a pandemic, have more on them than is almost imaginable at this point in time. And now you add that on top, I hope we get to carry that, you know, understanding of people have a lot on their plate and students who are taking, you know, what, four, five, six classes a semester, oftentimes those courses all have their midterms at the same time. Mm -hmm. And hearing from professors say things like, um, well, I actually reached out to a colleague in the such and such department to see when she was doing her midterms and tried to adjust it so that my students didn't have. And I just I really like that more collaborative, more personal approach to teaching. And I think it's, it, you know, I think long term, this may be a very good thing for higher education institutions. Yeah. It's a good shake up. Mm hmm. It's painful in the middle of it, but hopefully there's some good on the outside. Yeah, so. absolutely. That's that's actually a really good segue into what I want to talk to you about. And it's an essay that you wrote uh, for the 2020 Fall Baylor Line magazine. And it's about a period for you that was pretty painful, but had some really good things come out of it. And it yeah. was your experience as a person of color wading through a just a a personal identity crisis um, on a campus of predominantly white people. Mm -hmm. Do you want to talk about what brought you to this essay and kind of tell us what the essay is about? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, I think that I, um, you know, I'm 26 now. And obviously, I am not at all naive to think that I have figured out myself or life or, (laughs) you know, any of that. Um, And I'm sure that I'll look back at this time in my life when I'm older and, you know, see all the ways that I'll have grown, you know, up until
0: that time. I, I also know you, and I know at 96, you're still going to say the same thing. Yes.
1: <laughs> I hope so. I hope to always be adaptable and to be humble enough to, um, admit when I haven't gotten things hundred percent right. Um, but yeah, I, I think that just as I've had time to kind of grow into myself a little bit more, um, and to come to terms with my own identity and, um, basically just being able to look back at my undergrad experience and to see all of the ways that, um, it was, it was an overwhelmingly good experience, but the parts that were hard were really hard. Mm. Um, you know, being a black student well, I'm actually biracial. <laughs> I'm, my mother, mother is Mexican. My father is black. Um, and, I think that during undergrad, that was a time when I really did come into my black identity in part because of a lot of things that were happening like in the country as a whole. Um, and also things that were happening, uh, within my own interactions with other people mm-hmm. on campus. And because I look like somebody who is just black, mm-hmm. uh, most people can't tell that I'm mixed. Um, because of that, I think that there has been just a natural tendency for me to gravitate towards other black people because they gravitate towards me. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't speak Spanish so it's not like I, I can't really connect with Hispanics on that level um, and that's a huge part of Hispanic and especially Mexican culture is the language. Um, and so because of that, I think that I have already just kind of naturally been predisposed to um,
0: more easily connect with black people. Yeah, I when Whenever I first thought about what this issue was going to look like and and i knew that i wanted to keep the essay portion that i had started with my first issue back in the spring Um, i knew i also wanted to keep the part of the essay that challenged assumptions back in the spring we published uh, an essay by jennifer wagner about her uh, personal work through an eating disorder that she experienced developed in high school experienced an undergraduate and then really, um, you know, became a pivotal life crisis for her in her, uh, graduate work. Um, I knew I wanted to keep those pieces of it and you were the first person that I thought of whenever I realized that this issue was going to delve a lot into the issue of race and culture. Um, I know you as someone to be um, very introspective and thoughtful and also gracious in the working through the pain that you experienced to get to the point that you are now. So, um, so uh, having read this essay, uh, I love it so much. Um, But for those who haven't read it, do you just kind of want to sum up what it's about and maybe talk through some of the pieces of it?
1: Absolutely. Um, so it's basically just kind of a, um, a summary of my own evolution um, in cultural identity during my time at Baylor. And some of that is also, um, I kind of juxtapose it with what was happening In America on a larger scale Mm -hmm. Um, just to provide some context uh, because I think that some of these uh, some of these moments were really pivotal for a lot of black students like myself Um, I had you know I mostly had black friends during my time at Baylor and so we were all kind of going through the same thing and there was just you know a lot of moments where we were able to bond over a collective pain Mm -hmm. which is not ideal but it's important Mm whenever you are suffering in some way yeah um so basically, you know, I just kind of started out talking about my own background with my identity. Um I grew up in Houston, which is a super diverse city. It's I believe, you know, the it's definitely the most diverse city in Texas. Mm-hmm. Um it's the fourth largest city in the country. Yeah. Um and I didn't realize what a privilege that was until I left and yeah. moved and lived in other places. And you there are plenty of other cities in the, the states that are
0: diverse but are not integrated. I've I've always heard that Houston is one of the per capita most diverse cities uh, in the United States. I don't know if that's true or not, but I I mean, I remember that being said years ago. Mm-hmm. I would not be surprised
1: if that were true because yeah. it's, it's truly, truly a melting pot. And this, like in the sense that New York is a melting pot, Houston is yeah. very, it's a yeah, the That's the word the that I've lines. heard for it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I loved it, you know, and because I, of course, didn't know anything different, but you know, I realized now as I've gotten older that it just allowed me to learn how to interact with different kinds of people yeah. and to be comfortable around people who look differently than me, who live differently than me, who dress differently and speak other languages and um, have different senses of, you know. other cultures, especially non-American cultures, have different levels and different kind of... um, Other cultures have different expectations for etiquette. And so Mm. being able to understand that, you know, something that might seem like it's rude to American culture is not actually rude. It's just, you know, that's just how other cultures function. And Mm -hmm. I think that all of those things were just small pieces of me learning how to be able to interact with other people and then to then be able to express empathy for them and to understand that it's, you know, this idea of otherness Mm. um, does not necessarily have to be something that separates people. Um, But I think that a lot of times in places and, and in communities where people have not experienced anything outside of their own norm, it can be much more difficult whenever you move into spaces that are more diverse to then Healthily and uh, respectfully interact with people who are differently than you.
0: Yeah. Um, you used you just use this term otherness. Could you like define that term? Sure. Yeah. So
1: I think otherness is um, it's not a positive term. It's kind of this idea of there is a majority culture and anything outside of that is other. Mm. And the thing about it is, that it's pretty insidious in, in the sense that. A lot of people, especially if you're in the majority, you don't necessarily recognize that there is an othering or yeah. an otherness of people because you're, you're the majority. You know, everybody around you, for the most part, looks like you and believes like you. And you can look at somebody else and basically say, yeah, we're pretty much the same. Right. Or we have this in common. Um, but when you're not part of that, you're not part of the majority. It can be really difficult to um, to function in those spaces happily Um, And it's very apparent to you as the other that you have been othered, whether or not the people doing the othering realize that.
0: Yeah. So so otherness is a sister in tokenism. Yes. And so it's, you know, a lot of my
1: experience at Baylor was kind of just becoming more and more aware of my otherness. Um, And then also learning how to embrace that and to not be so hurt and upset by that because i i think I, again i, I as I, we've kind of talked about i very quickly learned and realized that other people didn't grow up how i grew up mm-hmm. um a lot of people at baylor did not grow up in houston and even if they did they probably grew up in areas that were predominantly white that were predominantly affluent um and those areas are very um Homogeneous and so if you haven't especially during your developmental years, been around people who are different from you, it can be kind of hard then to transition into a college environment where you do have more people yeah um, I think that if I'm not mistaken, Baylor is technically one of the more diverse mm-hmm. private institutions yeah um which is. Like, that's great, but it's also not saying much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> because I believe, uh, I think black students, at least when we were in undergrad our freshman year, made up about 6% of the whole population of students, mm-hmm. which was about 900 students. Mm-hmm. Um, and in a sea of 15,000, that's not very many. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it's it's kind of like, it's great on one hand that Baylor has created an environment and conditions for whatever reason that more students of color are willing to go to the university, Um, But then you still, again, have that sort of overwhelming white culture that is at Baylor um, just because, you know, the founders were white. A lot of the most of the professors are white. Most of the students are white. Um, And so that's that's then where it very quickly becomes, you know, there's an an unintentional um, but definitely very tangible othering for people who Mm. are on the fringes of uh, Baylor's sort of culture, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So. So you you spend the first part of the essay really like establishing like what you've experienced, how you came to this um and you you talk about how there is this negative part of your experience at Baylor and this positive part. Um how is that possible? How can you have a great experience and a bad experience at the same time?
1: Yeah, well, you know, nothing is black and white in life ever. Um And if it is, that's probably because we're trying to oversimplify things. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, I think that part of that is just naturally who I am. I'm typically a very gracious person uh, because, like I said, because I grew up with so many different kinds of people, um, I've interacted with plenty of white people my entire life. And so I understand that, like, like we've already talked about, if you've never experienced really, truly deep relationship with people who are not white, then it can be difficult for you to then
0: form those relationships later on in life. Would you say that n- not even specifically about white culture? But sure, if sure. Absolutely. If, anybody. if you have not experienced somebody out of not just race, but culture, religion, just worldview, that yep. it's even more difficult to connect um, with people that are different than you? Absolutely.
1: Yeah. And I think that, because, you know, I think a lot of times... um, It's it's that sort of intentional relationship that allows us to form empathy for other people um, and to understand, truly understand the struggles and the challenges that other people have. You know, I am not a man, so I can't possibly understand truly what it's like to have societal pressures of being a provider and being a protector and being strong and. Um, never being allowed to truly experience, you know, the softest parts of myself. I I can't relate to that because I'm a woman, right? Um, However, I do have close relationship with men who have talked to me about that. And so because of that, I am now much more likely to be gracious whenever I do encounter a man who seems to be struggling with with those things, you know, and and seems to be um, having a really hard time with emotions and things that are, are, you know, a natural part of himself, but that have kind of been, um, silenced just because of the expectations of what it means to be a man, you know? Um, and so I think in the same way that can be applied to just about any sort of difference that you have with a person. Um,
0: so you, you talk about in the piece, uh, you talk about finding a friend group, um, that it, they 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 looked like you, but they were teaching you how to be the real you, mm-hmm. not someone who you know. You say that you shopped in high school a lot at Hot Topic, um, you listened <laughs> exclusively to rock, and you used words like rad. Yes, which but I then, still use. I was about to say. Now you did you didn't fix that part. I love you, rad. But you 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 mention how um, you mention how you know this group of friends that you found who looked like you and helped you um, work through this personal identity crisis. And they did things like um, they helped you uh, become aware of what it's like to be um, uh, a woman of color and what the expectations of race and gender are in society. You also say that you started listening to rap and hip hop. Um, and you you, know, you say it was leagues better than the music you had been listening to. Perhaps most importantly, and I'm quoting you, I finally learned how to do my hair, a task that had long perplexed me and my Mexican mother as my hair texture changed with age. That's, that's such a specific thing in your life and something that I have never had to think about um, myself. Why is that small specific thing so important to you that you would take time in an essay to mention it?
1: Yeah, I think that especially for women, hair is so important um, because it's a it can often be a huge part of what's considered our beauty. Um, and it's one of the, the first things that people might notice about you. You know, if you are having a bad hair day, people can <laughs> generally tell.
0: <laughs> I don't. Know? I don't know what that's like. <laughs> never had a bad hair
1: day. <laughs> I, I believe you. you. You've probably never had a bad hair day in your life. Um, you know, but if you've if you've got especially curly hair for a very long time, products were not necessarily directed at curly haired people and especially Mm. not women of color that have a different hair texture from the average white person. Um, our hair tends to be more, um, coily. It tends to be a little bit, um, denser. It can take a little bit more sort of, uh, you know, oomph
0: to get the product in there. (laughs) So, so is that, is that an example of cultural othering? Yeah. That, that we're saying that, you know, we're not even going to design or at least market products to a specific type of person because so many of the majority have, you know, straight or slightly, you know, curly hair. They don't have the um, uh, the texture and the type that you do. And so that's a form of cultural othering. Yeah, absolutely.
1: And, and you'll actually see that a lot of, especially these days, a lot of the owners of black hair, hair companies are black women because yeah. for a very long time there were not very many options mm. and the options that was, that were there were not great. They weren't, you know, natural. They they were filled with chemicals and things that were not great for your hair or for your body or anything like that. And so there's been a lot of work, especially in the last decade, to really um, push for independent hair care lines that are catered to women of color. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, being able to meet people on campus and to make friends who understood that I had grown up with a Mexican mom who mm. doesn't have the experience of really, she did a great job with my hair when I was growing up. Right. But as the essay says, my hair texture started to change. And so with that change, um, it was basically like having to relearn how to do my hair altogether. Um, and so my friends were able to tell me, Hey, this is what I use for my hair and this is how I condition it. And this is, you know, how I detangle it best without damaging it. And it was just these small things that I wouldn't have known if I hadn't been able to talk to people like me or similar to me who um were then able to help me figure out how to care for my hair and to make turn my hair basically into something that I was really proud of
0: mm-hmm.
1: um and something that made me feel really beautiful.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so that that friend group at what point in time were you when you so when you came to Baylor, you grew up at uh, a private Christian uh uh high school academy mm-hmm. and then you came to Baylor. When you came to Baylor, did you like uh, transition friend groups almost immediately, or did you spend your early years at Baylor still trying to just go with what you knew? No, I actually, I feel like I got really lucky because I think that is some people's experience, but
1: I met my friend group the first week of college. Wow. (laughs) Yeah, we actually happened to be, um, going to the same church at the time at that time. Yeah. And, um, the church used to send a van to campus to pick up college students and take them on Sundays and Mm. also on college nights. And so we met waiting for the van to come get us. And it was like an immediate connection. And, you know, we were having fun chatting on the way to the van or on the van, on the way to church. Yeah. Um, and then when we got back to campus, somebody one of them was like, "Hey, do you guys want to go to Common Grounds, which you know is the coffee shop that's basically on campus for students?" Yeah. Um, and we did, and we sat and we all just talked for like two hours, and it was so much fun. We laughed a lot. We made a lot of jokes. Um, and it, it just felt like a really natural sort of connection. And so, you know, the rest is history. I, <laughs> yeah. I, um, I don't get to see those girls as much, but, um, I love them very much and I'm very thankful for how they helped me to grow into my own identity. Yeah. Um, and just kind of the, the support system that they provided during a really important time in yeah. my
0: life. Yeah. When, when I came to campus, um, I, I honestly, I honestly can't tell you much about the friend groups that I had between my freshmen um, and sophomore year. It wasn't until my junior year that I found that home. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how I opened up this magazine is by talking about it took me a while for me to find my home in the Baylor family. Um, and so what I'm hoping this essay can do is help others who haven't found their home see somebody who has and has found that working through the pain can be a positive experience. In fact, um, when you in the essay talk about, Um, the high-profile murders of Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Freddie Gray, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile, on and on and on, too many names to say. As you're working through that piece of this, you say uh, two things. One, that I absolutely love, and one that made me think so incredibly deeply about this topic. The first one is, you said, within this oppression... Black Baylor shined. I love that phrase so much. Um, but the piece that made me think the most, maybe in this entire essay, was despite our grief, we rejoiced in the collective pride of being black in a society often leaves us feeling broken. I, I just, I love that line so much when you talk about the collective pride of being black, what do you mean by that? You know, it's
1: uh, it can sometimes be kind of hard to put into words because it's one of those things that you just feel. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, you you know when somebody else, when a fellow black person feels it. Um, but it's, it's honestly just this... I think especially if you are a black American, because, you know, I, we start the essay by... Mentioning the fact that there are a lot of different kinds of black experiences in the u.s. Yeah, um, you know There are black people who come here from other countries So people who come directly from africa uh, People who come from other countries that also had a history of slavery and so they are black but also identify with a different nationality um, you've got, you know black people who came from the caribbean islands, you know, there there are just Mm -hmm. so many different forms of black, but um, this this sort of black pride is something that can transcend that, but I think it also is very powerful and distinct with black Americans. So Americans whose lineage is traced back to slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's been a, um, an erasing of mm-hmm. our history yeah. and of our ancestors and of knowing where exactly we came from, we've had to create our own culture and create our own identity within America, right? And so there is a big part of our, our legacy and of our, our cultural heritage is slavery and is suffering and it is Jim Crow laws and it is the civil rights movement and it is just a lot of oppression but that's not the entirety
0: of who we are even even in the essay you say there's a temptation to reduce blackness down to a legacy of suffering although that's an undeniable part of our heritage it's far from the full story the line before that sentence is that fullness of the story for you you say at the beginning Baylor is where I learned to be black halfway through the essay you say Baylor is where I learned to advocate for myself and people like me and then this line that comes right before that part about uh, reducing black experience to suffering you say finally Baylor is where I learned to rejoice in my skin
1: Mm -hmm.
0: at the very end you say you're you're talking about um uh you're talking about um a a, commence, a piece of commencement that we can talk about in, in just a sec that was very special for you but you say in that moment i was suddenly deeply undeniably grateful for the pleasure it is to be black can can you talk about that that commencement experience and that special service that you took part in um, that brought you to that specific moment.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know if I've, if I've made this clear yet in our, our conversation, but there was a time where I was not happy to be black. Mm. Um, you know, I, I yeah, as you mentioned briefly, I grew up in Houston, but I went to a private Christian school, um, that was predominantly white. And I was, I believe it was one of 12 black students in the entire school K through 12. What, what do you think the size of the school was? Like 500? Uh, yeah, probably. Okay. Probably about... Cool. Um, and so it was very few. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was actually in one of the rarest classes that had two black students in it. It was myself and another um, wow. girl. Um, but I believe, like, the grade above us didn't have any. The grade above mm-hmm. them, I don't think, had any. So, you know, it was, yeah. it was... Being black was not really, like, an important part of... The, or it wasn't a, a, an emphasized part of the experience because you know, as we talked about with culture, most of the culture that that was there at that school was white culture. Yeah. Um, and so there was a lot of me trying to just mesh into that and fit into that, because I think especially as a high school student, of course, your MO is just to yeah. make it, you know, and to, to have friends and to to make everybody else like you as much as possible. And I think a lot of times without really even realizing it, we can tend to lose ourselves, especially as we're in that stage, we're trying to even figure out who we are, Um but then, you know, once I got into college and, have, and had all these great experiences with friends who were um, different from the friends that I'd had before, and learning all these things about myself and how to feel comfortable in my skin, literally, you know, with my hair and, like, feeling good about my body, but also um, feeling good about my heritage and my history um, and all the things that come along with that, good and bad, I, I kind of arrived at a place where it was no longer taxing to be black. Mm. Um, It was enjoyable. It was a pleasure because I understood that even though I had had such a hard time and had felt so outside of the mainstream, that there were other people there who felt the exact same way as me. And so I knew that it wasn't a me problem. It was more of a culture and an environmental problem, Mm. Um, you know, because it's one thing if it's just you. Uh, and you think, oh, I'm just weird, or I'm just, you know, not somebody that people like, but then you realize, no, it's actually it's mm-hmm. something bigger than that. Um, and so when I finally was able to find my place and to find people who I loved and who loved me, um, it became much easier to to be happy about who I was. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So in a piece of it, it's not just being grateful for the pleasure of being black. It's grateful for the pleasure of being Ray.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. And and I, I think that a lot of that culminated in that last bit of the essay, um, the Kinte ceremony. At yeah, Baylor. yeah. Talk 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 about that. Yeah. yeah so yeah. Um, that is actually it's not something that is unique to Baylor. Mm-hmm. Um, and at Baylor, it's actually a little bit different. At other institutions, the Kinte ceremony is pretty, it's much more explicitly for black students, but I think at Baylor, there's just, you know, they celebrate multiculturalism and kind of an invitation to anybody, anybody. Yeah. So the the ceremony is for anybody. I've seen, um, a few white students do it. I've seen, you know, Hispanic students do Mm. it. Um, and it, you know, it's, Nobody says anything about them being there. Like they're mm-hmm. they're allowed to be there. <laughs> um, That's wonderful. Yeah, historically though, Kinte has been a um, a pre graduation ceremony that celebrates the academic achievements of students of color, specifically Black students. Yeah. Um, and it basically the the whole process of you're, you're given a cloth that is a Kinte cloth that is um, created. It's inspired by cloths that were used in ancient Ghana, mm. uh, which is a country in Africa. Yeah. And um, you know the, the actual kente cloths that, that they used in Ghana in you know, ancient times were just beautiful, you know, incredible patterns and colors and really nice materials and things like that. Um, but we have basically kind of adopted that um, history of using fabric and cloth to commemorate a really special moment and to commemorate a really special achievement. So it's it's a really special time for black students, especially where we get to say, we've done this really hard work of making it through college. And I think that the, the ceremony is really special for a lot of the black students, because for many of us, we're the first people in our families to go to college. So it's not even just about the graduation, like graduation in and of itself is, is incredible and is special. But it can a lot kinte can a lot of times be a ceremony that is, you know. Going back to that idea that our legacy is riddled with hardship, mm. it can be an acknowledgement of I have made it, and I can't even I can't even really describe and explain um, during the kinte ceremony how relieved I felt to be there. Because not only did it mean I had finished school, but I had done so against the odds, against the Mm. statistics that would say I, as a child, of two people who didn't go to college, who had me very early in life, um, who were of a certain economic class, um, that I was able to make it through college and to do so successfully and really well and to have a really great job lined up. You know, it was just a really emotional time because um, it was just a a a, really— an acknowledgement of the work that I had put in, but also of the work that had been put into me. Yeah. Um, And so I think that being there at the Kente ceremony and seeing all these other black and brown faces um, who had also a lot of, a lot of them had experienced similar economic or sorry.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, economic is, is a word that I would use there. Yeah,
1: well, so a lot of them had experienced a lot of the same academic um, struggles that I had mm-hmm. and, and this, okay. a lot of the same economic struggles as, struggles as well. Yeah. Um, and us just being there together was just a really special moment. Yeah. Um, and I think that for a lot of Baylor students, uh, like the, the typical Baylor student who is affluent and white, that a lot of those experience would, experiences wouldn't be relatable mm-hmm. necessarily. Yeah. Um, so it was uh, it was really great. It was a lot of fun. And, and I, um, you know, as I talk about, a little more eloquently in the essay um, just about what exactly that experience meant for me and yeah. for others.
0: I was I was looking through um, some of our photo databases the other day and uh, I came across just a, a swath of photos from a commencement uh, a few years ago and I, I actually what uh, uh, another team member was sitting in the room with me and I said, you know, I'm clicking through these images, and one thing that I notice uh, is that people wearing a kente cloth are so much more expressive about walking that stage <laughs> than anybody else on there. And I, I wonder if that's not a trickle over from that feeling that they had in this ceremony, of, yeah. of just, you know, the the realization of it in that ceremony, but the actualization of it in that stage walking.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, you know, my graduation was so great. And um, a lot of my I know you got to sit right
0: next to me. <laughs> yeah, That's all that matters, right?
1: <laughs> we did sit next to each other. That was yeah. so great. Um, yeah, I know. Uh, a lot of my family from Houston drove down and many of them did not get a chance to go to college. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really special time, um, especially because they're Loud,
0: and so when I cross the stage, I heard them. <laughs> I always love that. That's always guess, my favorite part of commencement. Yep. Is, is is so so often people get so like upset and and frumpity, uh, if that's a word, over people being loud yeah. or air horns or the cowbells and stuff like that. And I just I Look, always man,
1: we worked hard.
0: I, I mean, seriously, <laughs> when I hear that, it's hard not to cry. Yeah, like it's it's hard to hold back tears from that because. Just the joy and expressiveness of that family for that one person. Mm-hmm. I, I always love that. Yeah. I hate sitting through commencement, but that part makes it better. <laughs> the name calling is great. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it was it was just it was amazing. And you know,
1: of course they were all very proud of me, which was very affirming. Um, and it yeah. helped make all of the late nights and all of the hard studying <laughs> worth it. Um it, you know, but it was it was just incredible to to know that the, the pride that I felt in myself was also something that they they could experience for me, even if yeah. they themselves hadn't had the chance to experience that as well. Mm. Um, but I did actually, I wanted to kind of call back to something that you said earlier okay. about um, finding your home at mm. Baylor. Um, even though I, of course, had these this really great group of friends from the beginning, um, I also didn't really find a more mainstream home until I went to the the Lariat. Would you
0: really call us mainstream? (laughs) Would you really call us mainstream? More mainstream than,
1: you know. Okay, Yeah, so (laughs) um, I did just want to say that, you know, I I think that, and I believe I mentioned this in the essay too, that um, the Lariat and really the the journalism department at Baylor was where I connected with people who weren't black but who could empathize Mm. and who understood a lot of the things that I was talking about. Because, you know, sometimes... um, you know, as we talked about with the whole empathy thing, if you haven't lived and sort of um, really had a meaningful relationship with people who are different from you, it can be difficult for you to empathize with some of the problems that they have, Yeah, which means it can be difficult for you to recognize some of the problems that they even exist, right? Um, but I think that when I moved into the journalism department there were a lot of students there who and I, I think to be a journalist a lot of times you have to have that empathy because that's what makes you want to learn about other people and want to, to tell their stories to be
0: a good one definitely. Yes, to be a good
1: one um and so you know and the students who are good journalists are the ones who tend to want to work for the campus paper yeah um and so I got to connect with a lot of other students who were very different from me we were all different races different genders different ages um but it was a really great community for the most part, where, you know, even the most diametrically opposed of us were still, for the most part, able to empathize and to have really constructive
0: relationship with one another. Um, and I mean, literally the best thing that happened to me yeah. at Baylor in my undergraduate years is joining the Lyriot. Yeah. The amount of hours that we spent outside of our responsibilities to the paper outside of our responsibilities as staff members or writers or whatever we were doing, the amount of hours that we spent in the conference room um, in just the newsroom talking, the amount of hours that we spent there working through hard issues uh, it, it looking back on it, it was that really cliche, thing that people say about college where all people do is sit there, you know, and talk about big ideas. Mm-hmm. We talked about so many big and hard ideas. Um, I, I remember being on vacation in 2016 when, and maybe you remember this, we had a very infamous group chat, um, with a bunch of us in there. Um, and I love that group chat. I, I still love it. The, the, The moment that it was the most important for me was in the summer, in July of 2016, there were several high-profile murders of of men of color in a row, Um, many more that weren't nationally publicized. And then there was um, the shooting of the police officers, the sniper in Dallas. Mm -hmm. And I remember our group, I think our group was the only thing that got me through that week without just being utterly just angry and deflated. And I I was both of those things, but that that group chat of people who, like you said, work hard on empathy and understanding and growing our understanding of the world, um, that's the most powerful thing to me on earth is a diverse group of friends that isn't just about racial diversity. Yeah. It's about people who came from, like me, small towns, people from you, uh, people like you who came from big towns, people that came from um, the affluent side of big towns, and people who came from the less affluent side of big towns, people who have ex- experienced across the board, and all of us coming together And even in the midst of, you know, just the struggle of being in college Mm -hmm. and the struggle of, you know, working 40 hours a week to produce a paper, um, finding friendships that became more meaningful than literally anything else in my Baylor career. Yeah. Yeah. I can absolutely identify with that. So, so this essay, um, there's a lot more in it than just the words, um, I know that there could easily be a lot more in it than what's there. We had to cut out a lot. We had to cut a lot. (laughs) Uh, You know, we also, we also grew the page count so Mm -hmm. that there could be more. Um, But when someone reads this essay, what are you hoping for them?
1: I'm hoping two things. Mm. One is that, um, people who can identify with otherness and feeling like you're on the outside of things, that um, they can still remain hopeful about the fact that there is still space and there, there are still avenues to be able to find your community. Um, and also just to, to just feel reassured by the fact that these, experience, these experiences, especially as um, a person of color, you know, a lot of times they're not unique. There are a lot of us who have felt similarly and have felt outside and have felt discouraged and um, just have had a really hard time sort of adjusting. Um, But that just because you're having a hard time, that that doesn't mean you need to lose yourself or that you need to make yourself more palatable for Mm -hmm. somebody else. Um, Because there is always going to be somebody else who will come along and will accept you exactly as you are which is so important. Um, and I think secondly, I would hope that people who can't identify with this experience would be open-minded enough to read it and to understand that even if it wasn't their experience, it was someone's. Someone's, you know. Um, and and as you read it, you'll see it's actually not just someone's, but many people's. Yeah. Um, and I, I would hope that there would just be enough grace and understanding to just see that, you know, Baylor is wonderful and it's great, but also it's not perfect. And, um, some of that is not even the fault of the university itself. Um, but rather just kind of the different dynamics that are in play in American culture and just in the way that we as
0: people interact with one another. Yeah. You throw 16,000 people together, there are bound to be a few problems. Absolutely. (laughs) So with this essay, what's that top line thing you want someone to know? Baylor is not a place where
1: blackness goes to die.
0: Mm. That's good. Ray, it has been an absolute pleasure to do this. This has been a lot of fun, John. Thanks for having me. I feel like I feel like I was just on an Oprah show or something <laughs> like that. This has been my favorite episode so far. <laughs> you get a car and you get a car.
1: <laughs> I don't have cars, people. I'm sorry. <laughs>
0: So that's my interview with Ray Jefferson. Thanks so much for listening to the end. If you're interested in the resources we mentioned or how to follow Ray, you can find lots of links in the show notes below. Join me next time for a special conversation with Robert Darden on his latest piece for Baylor Line magazine. It's about a father who lost the most precious thing to him, his son, and his decades of struggle to find peace. I I promise you won't want to miss this one. Click the follow button to make sure you get it and each show directly in your feed, wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, while I'm on it, if you haven't reviewed our podcast yet, would you do that right now? You've had several episodes to listen to and get a feel for the new format and what we're doing, but we really need to hear from you so we can know how to make the show better going forward. You're actually our very best source for new listeners, too. It's something to do with the Apple Podcast uh, like algorithm. It rates shows higher the more that they're reviewed, and the more frequently that they're reviewed, more people will see it. And we'd love to share this with more of the Baylor family. We'd also really love, like I said, to hear your thoughts. You can post your review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows, and we're very eager to hear from you. I promise we do read every single review. If it's good, if it's bad, if it's indifferent, your review helps make this podcast better and remain your voice in the Baylor family. Our show is produced by the Baylor Line Foundation. Our audio producer is Michael Echterling, with production support by Courtney Faulkner. Research is by Rachel Cooper. Our director of marketing is Kaylee Davis, with additional support from Sophia Alejandra. Special thanks to Tony Peterson, Bob Darden, and Alan Holt. I'm Jonathan Platt.